Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the professor, Greg Dooley, and the pundit, Steve Clark. Men, take the mic. That's right, it's the Professor and the Pundit with Greg Dooley and Steve Clark. And as always, we are presented by Nick Hopwood, who is a certified financial planner, founder, and president of Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. The Professor and the Pundit have just returned from Pasadena, California, and it's going to be a memory that none of us will ever forget, Greg. Ever forget. In fact, a moment where Steve and I found each other on the gridiron of all places, walking on top of confetti. Steve saw me. And I saw him, obviously, after the win. What a moment. What a game. What a, what a trip for both of us. We got to talk about it, but we have so much to get to, man. It's unbelievable that we're here. It, it, it is like a dream. So Michigan beating Alabama, everyone knows by now, in overtime in Pasadena. It has been over a decade since Michigan even had to play for the Roses. The fact that it is a college football playoff semifinal, that it is the last of the 14 playoff, that it was in the traditional venue of the Big Ten champion going up against one of the biggest dynasties in college football of all time. A lot of things happened. And for one, Michigan is now on the verge of their first outright title since 1948 and becomes the second Big Ten team to win a playoff game, Greg. Yeah, and again, that that was there's so much involved here. So had we played Florida State, yes, and won, oh, it would have been amazing. But the fact that it was Alabama, the fact that Harbaugh gets over and the program gets over this little bit, this extra hurdle, right, of winning that game, so important. And I think you you liken to it like Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a team that's been in the playoff, right? Michigan was kind of in that category. They've lost all four games. Yeah. You know, Michigan's reputation is really hit and miss. And there would be a lot of people feasting on the opportunity that Michigan would be 0-3 after three straight playoff runs. And, you know, compared to the Buffalo Bills or something like that, it was extremely important for not only Michigan as a program to fight some of those things back, but just the pure enjoyment of seeing Michigan winning a game in Pasadena that doesn't happen all that often. And because it was against Alabama, it's a little chink that might suggest the end of their dynasty is coming. Yeah, for, for Alabama, obviously, and for Michigan, it does feel like we've kind of walked up this ladder of disappointments or things that other fan bases have had against this program. And you wonder if Alabama is going the other direction now with this one. But to beat Saban, the hated Saban, arguably <laughs> the greatest, most certainly most yeah. accomplished coach, just sick, man. And it certainly was far from perfect. Oh, gosh, no. No, I mean, there there were a lot of mistakes. And Jake Thaw's heady play that guaranteed that this wouldn't be the worst generational loss in Michigan history. Yeah, he bobbled the ball, and it started going into the end zone. The instinct is to fall on it. But if you fall on it in the end zone, that's two points for Alabama, and they win the game in the most ridiculous way. And then you have the comparisons to that with trouble with the snap against yes. Michigan State, which I think in the Rose Bowl would have even been worse than losing to Michigan State the way they did in 2015. I mean, it's just something that would be very hard as a fan to really recover from because no one will ever let you forget it. But instead, Jake Thaw, headsy player, goes back and makes sure he picks up the ball and then cradles himself and embraces himself for the hit because he knows that he has forward progress by picking up the ball. And it doesn't matter that he gets drilled in the end zone. The important thing is if he does get drilled and he knows he's going to get drilled, hang on to it. So they swapped Samaj Morgan out, who had, who made the mistake earlier. And by the way, he was one of the heroes of the Big Ten Championship game. So let's put that aside for a sec. I assume they put Jake Thaw in as a more sure-handed, maybe not as explosive. So they did that, right? And of course, what happened? But he does make the heads up play. Now, Steve, you know that I watched the last five minutes of the game from the opposite end zone. So I watched where uh, the Michigan painted end zone, where, where all the action happened after that point. But from watching from that perspective, all I saw were Alabama players running with the safety sign oh. toward the ball. Like at least a couple of them. What was going on in your mind? I at that thought point? I for for a second. 
I thought it was a safety because I couldn't see that much. There was a one thing I couldn't see that well. Because you're 100 yards away or 110 yards away yeah. when you count the end zone, yeah. plus you're at field level. Yeah. So I saw that it was muffed. I could tell that there, it was backward. Knew it was deep. Didn't know how. Couldn't see. And for a split second, I thought it was a safety. But then you judge the crowd reaction because there, there was almost like a relieved gasp from the Michigan side. That clearly it wasn't. And they but, were directly behind you? Uh, behind me, and then, of course, of course, along the, that sideline. Yeah. But you could hear. Anyway, you could tell the reaction. Obviously, the Alabama fans also would have gone nuts. But it was, it was frightening. It was frightening. <laughs> but that, among so many moments, and I think you're right, had it, had it gone that way, it would have been a mess. However, there are other plays that are probably going to be remembered for a generation. Until another hundred years of Michigan football is played. Well... The play is the last play of the game, and is Michigan stopping Milrow. As Chris Fowler said on ESPN on TV, Michigan makes a stand, and they win the Rose Bowl and basically kind of get the CFP monkey off their back. What a play. Yeah. There's a lot of blame going to go on the snapper for Alabama. This was not a snap, contrary to some opinion, that it skittled across the ground in Milrow's hands. It was just a low snap. Yeah. Okay. But to me, this looked like that Milrow, no matter what the offense was presenting, and there was, you know, presentations of, of throwing a slant into the end zone. There was, you know, going to a, a receiver in motion and throwing out into the backward flat, have two blockers downfield, and maybe he could make his way into the end zone there. There was Milrow going to the line and then using the pulling right guard off to the left side and could have used him as a blocker and found him way to the end zone. I'm telling you, I've watched that play a hundred times now. As soon as Milrow caught it, it was a bullet right into the middle of that Michigan defensive line, and he went absolutely nowhere despite the options that were available around him. Yeah. And Michigan just made the absolute greatest stop. And the first, but certainly not the least, was the person who made the tackle, Derek Moore, on the defensive end side, crashing through two position groups to get in the middle, and he's the one who actually gets the official tackle on the play. So that shouldn't be discounted at all. But the person who actually stopped Milrow first was his own right tackle, a second-team All-American, first-team All-SEC conference at right tackle. He weighs 110 pounds more than Josiah Stewart, the transfer from Coastal Carolina. He, at 110 pounds less, bullies the right tackle and nearly pancakes him into Jalen Milrow, and that's where he kind of lost his momentum. The hips collide, the legs meet, and Milrow is still in there with a head of steam, but that was it. Ben Herbert. Ben. It's Herb. It's the strength coach. It's It's been, I think it's the secret sauce in the last three years. He got leverage on a guy that outweighed him by at least 110 pounds, but not only pushed him or stood him up, pushed him right into the quarterback. And yes, the perhaps the snap... They lost a fraction of a second. But are you kidding me? And I heard I heard some of the analysts say, no, no, they, they called the right play. I heard Hasselbeck say on SDP, on, on Scott Van Pelt, that they had the right call. The snap was bad and kind of, no, no, that blew up the play. That blew up the play, Josiah Stewart. I give so much credit, not only Jesse Minter, for the chess match that went on before, the three timeouts <laughs> that were called yeah. before the play. By the way, that adds to the to the memory and the drama of this, is the chess match that went on with the different schemes. And you have to think, though, that Milrow wanted the game in his hands, such a fantastic player, that he wanted to play, but it was blown, absolutely blown up. And I know they had some options there in the play. Absolutely blown up by Stewart. Fantastic play. And, and all the other guys did their job, right? And I heard that there was a bubble screen option on the play, but it, I don't think they were going to go that route. Steve, did you see anything else? No, as I was yeah. saying, it, it, as soon as he caught the ball, he didn't yeah. look around. He no. just went straight ahead. Yeah, he did. He didn't go far. <laughs> no, and, and he didn't. He got a gain of one yard and all that. One of the things that we're sitting there trying to do the pregame show and do the matchups and predict what's going on in the, in the countdown to kickoff on WTKA is what's going to happen in the game. And one of the matchups I thought was this chess play that would go on in between the, the decisions. The, the game could be decided by the play callers seeing something in game and changing something around. And it wasn't exactly the way I thought it would be, like it would be in overtime or something like that. But you clearly saw that the Tommy Reese 
and Jesse Minter going at at the end, and Minter clearly won that battle against uh, the former Notre Dame quarterback. And then the other thing, at the end of this game, that Michigan might actually be tied or trailing, and this whole idea that J.J. McCarthy over Cade McNamara... Well, well, hang on. Give yourself a pat on the back, Steve. You basically predicted this on the pregame show that this would happen, or that this is how you saw it playing out. Give yourself a pat on the back. Come on, Bundit. Pundits. <laughs> Pundits. Thank you. I don't want to pound, pound it too much, but the idea that they would come back, and this is the reason why you have J.J. McCarthy. Yeah. And they would go down the field and make this historic Rose Bowl win, and it's exactly you know how it went into overtime. But my goodness, for those that were there, for those that even watched it on TV at home, this isn't going away, regardless of what happens to Michigan playing Washington yeah. on Monday night. This moment, it's just so huge. Well, let's talk about that. So so let's say it doesn't go Michigan's way on Monday, and obviously we're recording this before that. There's definitely a what could have been. Okay, I'll agree with you. Because the closest thing I could think, and I, I unfortunately was at the Fab Five's 93 game with a timeout in, in that weekend. And no one ever forgets the Fab Five. In fact, we're talking about them and wearing their clothes all these years later. And that season was so special, right? The difference is they didn't win technically any championships or titles. And Michigan had the opportunity, obviously, to win the the Big Ten, which we said you can't take that away. Three straight wins over our rival and to get the Big Ten. And now this, the Rose Bowl championship, it matters, right? You can't take it away. And one of my indelible memories from 93 was the Kentucky semifinal. It's probably the greatest basketball game I've ever seen. And obviously the stakes had something to do with it. Also overtime. Yes, it was. Um, fantastic game of blue blood teams. But yes, you, you were so disappointed by obviously the result, how it happened. And looking back, other than the Final Four banner, of course, there's not a ton to hang your hat on because you don't have the championship. This is a little different, I think. Now, that's obviously the bad outcome. With the win on Monday, I'll say this. The most accomplished team in Michigan football history, obviously win-wise, but Fielding Yields probably would have won 20 games if they played 20 games in mm-hmm. the early 1900s. The gauntlet they went through. The fact that you have the championship game and you have two playoff games you have to win. Woodson said it himself on the Rich Eisen show already that this would be a greater accomplishment and a greater team in 97 just because of what they had to do. Granted, the other teams didn't get the opportunity to prove it, but that's the reality of what college football is right now. This team would be up there, in my mind, as a historian with the greatest of all time. That's what's at stake Monday. And obviously, things we'll see what happens in the fallout, but let's have that problem, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> but it almost writes out as fiction. Yeah. The idea of you know playing games where you weren't sure whether your coach was going to be on the field. And, yeah, and it was like your biggest game up to date in that season, going to Happy Valley and playing a top 10 team, ranked at home, not knowing whether your coach would coach in that game. And then your interim head coach, who just happened to be an interim head coach for one game previously in, uh, in, in September against Bowling Green. All these obstacles that they had to get over does make this the sweetest team of all time, but they got to get that extra step. Yeah. We'll, we'll certainly talk about that coming up later on in the Professor right and Pundit podcast. But how about how about some more moments that will be in your mind as the years to come in this one? Yeah, I got to go. One of the things I did see on the field was Roman Wilson's catch. What I didn't realize is that the ball was tipped and somehow kept the pace but was elevated a foot or two on a slightly domed field I don't know how high he got up, but during that final drive to catch that ball, amazing. Certainly there's so many plays at the end. The fourth down call to Blake Corum. Uh, fourth and two. Yeah. Final minutes of the game. I think you heard, um, was it Trevor Keegan was saying to his teammates, this could be our last drive together. Okay. Some of the other memories, of, of course, was the number of times that this defensive line just came in and destroyed Alabama's offensive line. They said it was a total of six sacks. It seemed like it was more. It felt like there was eight. And basically, Nick Saban said as such, we just didn't feel confident passing the ball anymore. No, and give him credit, man, because so they changed their offense to adapt to this, this dominance, especially over the center, right? And they did. He's just a brilliant coach. 
Michigan wins the coaching award for this one, but you got to give Saban credit for how they adjust this. In fact, at one point, I did think the game was tilting too out of hand and we're going to lose this for sure. Like, I, 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 I felt like, okay, we still have a chance here, but something's got to change. Well, as long yeah. as Michigan was within one possession, you can try to feel that can change back around with one score. If you're down two possessions, kind of a different story. Yeah. There was also that moment in the fourth quarter where Michigan got the turnover and it said, no, nah, this is the opportunity yes. they needed. And they were headed at midfield and they ended up with no points on the whole thing. And you felt, yeah. well, that was it. And it's not, it's not going to come back around. And in fact, in one I did, play, and I felt that way. Yeah. One, it was one play where Alabama got some extra rushing yardage because the Michigan tackler was trying to create another fumble by tackling the football and didn't wrap up the player. And that was another 15 yards in addition on top of that. But Michigan's defense held. It was less than five minutes. I got a picture of the scoreboard because there was something I just Gosh. felt. I got a picture of the scoreboard to show the time and the distance remaining. So that is up there. I'll probably, uh, I'll probably put it out as a tweet that I actually did take that picture. So there was that. Let's see. What else goes to your mind? So many mistakes and poor execution and on special, special teams. teams. I mean, if you're grading them out, it's an E. It's, it's not passing. There were, there were rough punts. There was the botched extra point. There was the huge turnover on the, on, the, on the fumble. There was the near disaster. It was bad. Only thing, of course, yeah, we're talking about it as the 10th thing we're talking about on this podcast because Michigan won. It probably would have been the reason that Michigan lost. Exactly. And that's tough. And But we, we escaped. Uh, have, we've been so great on special teams all season. By and large, there's been a couple yeah. mistakes. Let's hope whatever is bad luck, right? Karma, I don't know. Is it out of our system? Let's hope so because we need that. We need that. It, it, it will be in their minds, yeah. Um, in Houston, anytime that a punt is fielded now, people who are viewing the game, the players themselves, they're really going to have to work on their confidence. And I wouldn't be surprised if they just let every single punt just kind of roll. And, and maybe take a 20-yard hit. But that's what was happening in the game against Alabama in the second half. One, Michigan only had like two first downs before that final drive. And the other thing is, in a game of punting, Alabama's punting was averaging between 50 and 60. Fantastic. And Michigan was averaging 40. Yeah. And it seemed like every time there was a trading of punts, Alabama was gaining an extra 10 to 15 yards with each possession. And when Alabama got that store to be up by seven, it was because Alabama was starting at midfield. Yeah, it was it, that crucial in that game, a, a close game like this, the field position through punting. We even got a break on one of the punts where it bounced at, you know, in our favor, but it was really short. That was brutal. Um, any other plays stand out for you? Well, the very first play where J.J. looked oh. like he had thrown an interception, yeah. we had the perfect viewing angle. If there was a camera in our seats, and it wasn't just, you know, my seat. It was the kind of... 60 square people that were around me, we saw the perfect angle, the viewing angle between J.J. McCarthy, who could have thrown it to Roman Wilson short in the flat, and he was open for a long time. And to us, very first play of the game, you see him open, J.J. isn't throwing it. And in my mind, it's like, he's right there, throw it. Nobody else is out there. And it looked like, again, it's not what it was, but what it looked like in the moment was that J.J., Found his Alabama receiver and threw it right <laughs> his out. Alabama receiver. He threw. He found the Alabama yes. receiver he wanted to throw it to, and he threw it right at him. Right. And we were just stunned, which reminds me of the post in the uh, Penn State Ole Miss game, where Drew Aller threw his second interception of the year, and they had this tweet of a parent of a Penn State player doing a, a WTF. You know, yeah. to her husband, you yeah, know, that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, yeah. warranted even her to, she got so famous, she had to tweet back and explain, you know, and apologize about what was going on and try to set the scene there. That was my first thought. I was thinking yeah. the same thing. So, first play. This is one of those situations in the crowd, you all know what I'm talking about, where everyone is kind of looking around, looking around at each other and looking at yeah. dead, dead strangers in the eye and yeah. going, what? is happening and and all i could think of was tcu and i go oh my gosh and then it wasn't clear to me why they overturned it in the stadium right at all i found out later through my son he said that he was out of bounds and didn't get back yeah. in properly 
That's, but, but it had nothing to do with where J.J. threw the ball. That's the thing. That's so, how fortunate. Okay. So, As it turned out, J.J. threw three touchdowns for no interceptions in the game. There you go. Oh, I was a little surprised. Now, Alabama played a great game defensively and definitely seemed to lock us down mid-third to beginning halfway through fourth. But I expected a little more pressure from the edge. Right. right? Dallas Turner, first-team yeah. All-American. And, and Chris Braswell, I mean, these guys, I think, were around 20 sacks combined, something like that, uh, going into this game. Uh, Dallas Turner was, was specifically asked after the game, why didn't, why didn't you, you know, get to the quarterback more? We didn't see you in the backfield a whole lot. His response was basically, I did what I was told. And suggested in that comment that he was told not to pass rush because of one of two things. They either feared J.J. running around him or J.J. getting to the tight ends because of it. Yeah. Because what Turner and Braswell were doing were playing out in the flats where Michigan loves to throw to Colson Loveland and where they love to throw to A.J. Barner. How many catches did they have? Not very many. No, they didn't. And, and maybe the reason because the Alabama was taking that away. Okay. And that gave McCarthy time, but his receiving options were limited. And through three and a half quarters, that seemed to be a pretty good bet for them. Uh, unbelievable. Just a fantastic day. Should we, should we break down a little, you know, sights and sounds for pregame? Absolutely. Like what we, did? It so, was, it was, we were there for like five days before, before the game <laughs> even started. Well, yeah. And one of the things we did was we actually drove out to see uh, the day before to do a sight check, they call it, in the business, Steve. Yep. On the radio setup for the WTK pregame show, of course, which Steve is, is one of the co-hosts. And we got to see the stadium and the vibe, and they had, they had a fan event there, so it was actually very crowded around the stadium. But that was sweet. Um, and your location from to do the radio show, right in, in the shadow of one of the big iconic views of the, of, of the Rose Bowl with the sign and everything. It was written up in the paperwork as the beauty shot. By the Rose Bowl Committee. Oh, now it I was, understand what that means. It was okay. called the beauty shot. Yeah. And there is beauty shots apparently at every stadium, but it was referred to as the beauty shot, and it's what you see on TV. You see the mountains in the background. You see the neon Rose Bowl sign during the daylight or at night. And there is people walking into the stadium in the respective tunnel areas, and there's this kind of greenery grass out in the front, and that's where we were at. We were sort of like, there's this the shrine to Jackie Robinson as a football player. Yeah, UCLA. And then we were standing out between that and the stadium, and it was all green, and we had the entire Big Ten network out to our left. It was so close that I could have wadded up a piece of paper and thrown it in front of their cameras and have it land on their desk. Right. That's how close we were to them. And then on the right is the station that both of us listen to, Sirius Channel, XM Radio, Channel 84, College 84. Sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were on the right. And uh, they were a little more than a paper, paper throw away. But what it did was it prevented us from having any speakers planted so that people could hear what we were yeah, doing. Yeah, Because then it would just be you wouldn't be able to hear each other at all. So we just kind of all did our thing, but we were certainly there. We had a lot of people that went to say hi. In fact, one of our uh, listeners, uh, listener Michael, gave us uh, some beverages to enjoy after the game. The, the ironic thing is, couldn't take it inside the stadium and couldn't take it on the plane, but I did find a hiding spot for it amongst the 90,000 people, if you can believe Ooh. that. Imagine going to Michigan Stadium and says, I think I can find a hiding spot around Michigan yeah, Stadium. Yeah, yeah. And I put the case underneath that. Sam got a gift as well, and I put that in the Ira secret hiding spot. Well. Yep. I got one as well. Yeah. And and uh, I came back after the game some six hours later, and it was all still there, which was I just love it. Well, shout out thrilled. to Michael, who's been an awesome supporter on Twitter and other other places. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. It's halftime on the Professor of the Pundit with Greg Dooley and Steve Clark. We're presented by Nick Hopwood, a certified financial planner. He's also the president and founder of Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. Nick, you're known as Mr. Roth because you have expertise in traditional and Roth IRAs as well as 401ks. Can you describe the differences? Sure. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate the nickname. <laughs> Mr. Roth. So a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k differs from a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k by when the money is taxed. All the other rules and, and structure and design are the same. But on a traditional 401k, which most people have been contributing to, the money goes out of your paycheck on a pre-tax basis. So 
For example, if you have a $100,000 salary and you added $10,000 to your 401k, on your 1099 or on your W-2, it's going to say $90,000. That's the only amount that you're taxed on. So the money goes in pre-tax, gross tax deferred, but then you're going to have to pay taxes on that in retirement. Whereas a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, the money is deposited into the account after tax and it grows tax-free forever. So on the traditional, you, you pay tax on the back end and on the Roth, you pay tax on the front end. Thanks, Nick. We'll have more in-depth conversations with the advantages of Roth IRAs in the upcoming weeks. But if you can't wait, go to peak wm.com or call 734-681-7575 that's peakwm.com were you able to make in the field before the games to kind of walk yes the field? i had about an hour before the pregame show started espn's college football game day was just ending i felt almost very alone out on that field, didn't know what I could do, what I couldn't do. So I was on the grass, but I stayed completely off the playing field and just soaked it all in. If somebody took a video of me just being there, who is this aimless guy just randomly staring into space, walking a few steps, taking a picture, and then staring into space? That would be me, trying to soak everything in because, as, as we've said a few times now, first trip to Pasadena. 52 years into the making, a long time since I had an opportunity to even go. And I just wanted to take in that atmosphere. And it's, it's different in the morning than it is at night after a victory, but you're there kind of in this empty stadium on the dawn before it all lays down. Yeah. So, and, and so it was I just a it. beautiful thing. I love it. And of course, the weather wasn't great like the days leading up to this game. But once again, the Rose Bowl, just blue sky, beautiful. And the morning, there was dew on the benches and the seats uh, for the teams. And so I know that because Ira Weintraub and I walked the field as well a little before you, closer to 9 a.m. when they opened it, actually opened it up. And game day was going on. I did a lap with Ira to midfield. And then we walked across the field at midfield to take a couple pictures, also not knowing the rules apparently. Because I was told, so was Ira, right after we got off the field, if you do that again, you're going to get kicked out of here. And we said sorry, just kept walking, <laughs> did not know. But same thing, soaking it all in. Now, I mentioned on a previous show, this is my fifth trip to the this coveted you know, event. And, of course, never been on the field before, though. And it, it's obviously a special place, special time. You do feel like it's more akin to a religious experience for Michigan fans. I felt that. Not the first time. It's been described as a religious experience, and it does feel like when you go to these stadiums, you're you know you're going to a, a, a different cathedral. Yeah. Now, that said, the crowd, Steve, can we talk about this a little? Yeah. Bit? Um, I've heard different versions. It was close to half and half. I think I would probably give Michigan fans an edge as far as the real question is: there's a there's an Alabama side and there's a Michigan side, right, on, on their respective sidelines, and then you see, well, where does the where do the sides kind of come together, that confluence, right? I don't know. Close to half and half. Some people said 60-40 Michigan. But I'll tell you this. The Michigan fans were hype, Steve. They were hype. And did you catch this? I sent you this clip from uh, Rick Neuheisel on Full Ride. That, that You mentioned the Channel 84. One of the great moments of the game was they didn't have a lot of piped-in music. They had this and that, but it was mostly the bands, right, which kind of has an old-school college football feel. The scoreboards aren't big there, probably to a fault, but, hey, it's the Rose Bowl. That's fine. But they did in the third quarter, around the traditional time they do it at Michigan Stadium, play Mr. Brightside. And I can tell you about it, and I can tell you it was great. But here's a reaction from Rick Neuheisel, of course, the famous coach who heard it for the first time, and this was his reaction. I didn't yeah. realize it, but Michigan sings Mr. Brightside. They, it was at the top of their lungs. It filled the Arroyo Seco. If you were not singing it, you were listening intently yeah. to them singing it. There it is. This was filling the Rose Bowl. I'm just, I was like, <laughs> that's awesome. And I, I mean, at the top of their lungs, they were going crazy. And so that song singing, and it's kind of typifies their season. You know, what the hell? You say what you want about our program. <laughs> it's Mr. Brightside, right? 
So I was right in the middle of that. I'm sure you were too, Steve. Um, and then they, there was a break or two, and then they played the Alabama song, which is a song called Dixieland Delight that, that I guess is, is, is just as associated with them. And here's what Neuheisel said about that, and this is funny. Yeah, this is from Sirius Channel 84, Full Ride. It's Dixieland Delight, right? And so they're getting ready to do their song. We've seen it in Bryant Denny. Sure. But as that song went, as that song went, the Michigan fans weren't just sitting listening. They weren't, you know, on their, you know, being the good sports. They were going, let's go, boo. Let's go. Nice. They, they just drowned it out. Just completely <laughs> drowned it out. And I'm like, this Michigan fan base, you talk about a team that's been galvanized. This Michigan fan base has been galvanized. They are all in. I, I thought he nailed it because that's that's what we're feeling and seeing and hearing. But to hear from someone who's a step away from what we're, this vibe that we're feeling and this feeling of the Michigan fans. And by the way, it was absolutely true. The Let's Go Blues started about halfway up through their song. I think it came either out of the band or out of the student section and spread on the Michigan side. And of course, we're, we're with all the Michigan fans, but it did overwhelm. On our side, for sure, the Dixie Land Delight play. I thought it was great. Well, and this is a commentator who's talked a lot about the biggest story in college football, but this is the first time that he actually kind of got to experience a Michigan game. Yeah. And so you could tell he's kind of enjoying it. I happened to meet Coach Neuheisel that morning. Showed up at the hotel that we were all leaving. In fact, there was a lot of people that showed up at the hotel, and we all kind of kind of left together. I like listening to him because he, as a former coach, he actually shares some things. He's not interested in coaching again, so he, he shares some things that he's not worried about sharing. Yeah. And so you get a perspective of what's going on, and a lot of times it's not exactly what you think. He does his research, too. I give him credit for that. And he, he's, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's got some humility to him. He does a great job. By the way, rode the, I rode the shuttle back with Coach Neuheisel. Oh, okay. Sat, sat a seat or two behind me on okay. the way back. Yeah, long trip back, by the way. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because the uh, trip down there. There was a bus yeah. or two, I assume, for the media yes. to hop on. Okay. Yes, and we, yeah. we all wanted to take the one that had a police escort to beat the Pasadena traffic and the parade and everything. So we took the 9 a.m. local time shuttle. And I'm trying to remember who was all. Bruce Feldman from Fox Big Noon Kickoff and The Athletic was behind me. A-list. Yep. <laughs> Nicole Auerbach was in front of me. Stuart Mandel was to my left. Andy Staples was also in the row to my left. Uh, so a lot of people from The Athletic, but then there was also Chris Doring from the SEC Network on television. He was sitting in one of those seats, and they were just kind of all intermixing. I was just kind of looking out at the sky, looking, you know, seeing what the view was like around the mountains, but my ears were open. And I was waiting for them to talk about how can we, you know, so, yeah, they're, they're all together. They could finally talk about Michigan and what they think of them. Nope, none of that happened. There was ah. no talk about what they thought of Michigan. Most of the stuff I already knew, and they, I think they knew too, and they were just kind of bouncing some things off. Who knows whether they want to even reveal much to themselves because they got a story to write that they want theirs to be unique. That's true. You know, they, kind yeah, of going yeah, into true. it. I did have a chance to talk to, with Bruce Feldman on the shuttle back. And it was a casual conversation. It wasn't me interrogating him. He tried to break the ice a little bit because what he did was he responded to him, you know, hey, Bruce, why don't you post about this? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. And he politely replied to it. And I started laughing and I said, I know the guys you're replying to. And, and, and then I added again to help break the ice a little bit. We're a little bit sensitive in Ann Arbor right now. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And with that, I was able to have like a 20-minute conversation with him Nice on the way back. And I, I think for our listeners, the big takeaway for him is, well, how does he feel about things now? The most important thing is that his reaction to all this was, you've just beaten Alabama. What more does Michigan have to prove over whether their wins are legit or not? And his big take now was he was going to be interested to see who would write something like that up those that are the strongest critics would they change their tune and that was sort of his input on that 
Can I add to that oh, yeah. Feldman take real quick? Yeah. So I saw Pat Mac- McAfee. So they did the ver- various versions of the broadcast, right? You could, you could, there was eight different mm-hmm. ways to watch the Rose Bowl. And there was a crew on, on the field, multiple, yes. calling the game from their angle. And they had, they had actually the, the, the video boards set up so they could see the action and watch the replays. I saw McAfee after the game. That, but I heard him. He said he's always been going against Michigan. He said his, his point was because if there are football gods, Michigan will be punished. And what he said on his show was, when he was walking off, he goes, well, maybe the football gods, they did decide, but they, they, went, out, they went in Michigan's favor. <laughs> in other words, they just proved to everyone that all this stuff is, and he used the real word, but is BS. And that's what the, that's what the football, that was the judgment laid down by the football gods was his point here. So, and that's what everybody, that's what everybody in Ann Arbor has been waiting for, some yeah. sort of vindication. Yeah. And, and the more you win against more top-ranked teams, because Michigan has now beaten Penn State, they've beaten Ohio State, and they've beaten Alabama. Two of those teams were ranked in the top five. Three of those teams were ranked in the top ten. And all of these games took place after everything was discovered. Yeah. And, well and, and after, you well gotta, after you things to, were discovered. You have to throw an Iowa, too. I'm sorry. Yes, anemic offense. This was a legitimate team, though. Right, you know, Yeah, yeah. So all of this after, it's so far in the back of the mirror now, you know, in the rearview mirror. Well, what you'll get with the national title is, well, it's illegitimate because the NCAA is going to do this, but I don't know how many national people are going to make that argument now. No, in fact, the national people have come out to say that the college football playoff committee that awards the national champion is separate from the NCAA. Yeah. And it's ver- not very likely at all that they would ever strip it, despite what pro-Ohio State and pro-Michigan State people yeah. want to throw out there okay. and pretend to be reporters on social media are going to say. The last thing about Feldman that I wanted to talk about because he's kind of known for interviewing these anonymous head coaches. Oh, right, 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 right. And right. another round has come out this week getting their feelings on Michigan and Washington. And I asked him, says, do you think that some of the Big Ten coaches were a little salty? Because it seemed like all the other teams were – paying these great amount of respect for what everybody could do offensively and defensively from the coaches to the players. It was only in this article about Michigan. And I said, some of them are blaming you, but it's the coaches that are actually saying these things. Why do you think that some of them just were huge doubters? And he agreed that he thought a couple of them were salty on the Michigan offense, not necessarily on the defense, but a little salty on the Michigan offense. So there is a second round of this. All right, so one of these coaches heard Jim Harbaugh talking about J.J. McCarthy as like the greatest quarterback in Michigan history. And then there was this comparison about all the chunk plays that Michael Penix can throw. And this coach who had faced Michigan says, they have explosive playmakers, but chunk plays? J.J. McCarthy ain't that guy. I don't know what Harbaugh is talking about. He's out of his mind. Unbelievable. Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. <laughs> so you can see there's still saltiness. There's saltiness. Even, even going into the championship game where you got to just say, this head coach is out of his mind. He might be out of his mind, but something's working. <laughs> but he's winning. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you're the one being interviewed about, uh, about being beaten. Unbelievable. By such a guy who is out of his mind. Yeah, uh... <laughs> I took a different path to the game, Steve. I tried to outsmart the media shuttle by, and I wanted to be there a little earlier because I kind of decided, hey, if I'm doing this, we're doing the full day game experience. We're doing the full day. I want to stretch this out as much as I can. So I actually took an Uber early thinking I would beat the Rose Parade. I've been through this before. They shut down almost every street within a two-square-mile area of Colorado Boulevard. You can't get through. You have to go around. There are ways. But we I decided to go an Uber, which I and I even had a drop-off point if they couldn't get me through to the stadium. We we couldn't even get to the drop-off point. So we this poor Uber driver tried all these different ways. But anyway, what it turned out to be, he dropped us off like right by the parade, and we were actually able to catch some of the parade. The, the nice. B-2 bomber that went over the stadium actually let off the parade as well. So they actually flew it over the parade route beforehand. So we saw that go over our heads, got a beautiful walk down. You kind of walk down the valley into the stadium from down from Pasadena. 
through these beautiful neighborhoods and, you know, just manicured lawns and all that stuff. So it was actually a lot of fun. It turned, turned kind of a funny experience. I was with my daughter um, into kind of a cool experience. What, so. what, what, what was funny is the, uh, for us, this media shuttle bus under police escort, we were going down roads where no cars were allowed. There were cops saying just like, yeah. you can't even drive through here. And I had a feeling knowing how narrow the road was and how the trees kind of over went over the top and how this big bus was barely getting through. I have a feeling that a bus goes on these streets one day a year Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On, on January 1st. And it's the only time that a motor coach bus ever goes down these three or four roads that take you right to the entrance of the stadium. No. And there are some fancy houses like up up in those hills by the stadium and going by, mm-hmm. I mean, walled off like fancy, fancy stuff. Zillow, Zillow.com, yeah. Realtor.com, oh, take yeah. a look. I have a feeling that a lot of the things that happen on January 1st are for January 1st only. So uh, with those kind of people that are probably in those houses. So I did go down on the field for the last five minutes. And obviously – the last five minutes, Steve, turned into, oh, about an hour on the field. So, you know, through through the those last five minutes, of course, all you know. All the uh, time out. The drive. Okay, Alabama got the ball back. We forget. They, they you know, they, they didn't do anything with it. Michigan got the ball back. Punt. We know that. Then the then the coin flip, the over the first part of the overtime, which went pretty quickly. Thank, thank you, Blake Corum. Got an incredible video, I think, from about the goalpost of Blake Horm's touchdown. Oh, you did fantastic. Which I have posted, and I'll post a link here to the three videos I got. And I'm not one of those, why don't you just watch the game? No, I actually held the the camera down and watched with my own eyes what was happening. So I didn't miss a thing. (laughs) Um, But I felt like I had to try to capture it just because it was so incredible. Glad I did because I, I think a lot of people enjoyed that view, that perspective. I, for me, I was I was very envious knowing that I could go on the field for the final five minutes. But the point of this trip for me was, as a person who's been working, I never get to go yeah. to games with my family. And my son, over the last five years, has become a big Michigan football fan. Doesn't go to Michigan, but he's still a big Michigan football fan. And this was about the trip, the two of us going together. Now, if this was a 30-point blowout, then I could have probably departed and been on the field. But there was no way. Oh, I understand. As, as a fan, and it's something I never got to experience with my own dad, I just could not leave him alone. Yeah. No, and, I get it. And, and go down there. So I, 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 And I thought about it. and I But I did tell my daughter before the game. Now, now she is not a sports fan. It's to a different, that's a that different story. Yeah. It's it, a completely different story. It does not make you a bad dad. Thank you. <laughs> I was getting hate. You left your daughter up and stuff. Well, By I, the way, at that point, we had hugged perfect strangers. There was love going on with all the people around us. <laughs> there were some little kids sitting next to us. Actually, they were super cute. But I felt completely comfortable going down. And I, I, I said, I can't miss them. And by the way, was waving, you know, that kind of thing and saw my daughter. But we did a bunch of other stuff, Steve, outside of the Rose Bowl. We went to a Clippers game. We saw the yes, Lions game in Santa Monica. Oh, Steve, we stayed an extra day, which was planned. Um, after you know, so so on the second, we were hanging out, and we were going back to the to the hotel. And I saw all these Maple Leafs jerseys walking around. I go, oh my gosh, are the Leafs in town? <laughs> and I'm not a big Leafs fan, but I go, you know what? We we got to keep this vibe going. So we actually went to the hockey game. We saw the Kings and the Leafs play. We went to the Grammy Museum. We went to the Hollywood sign. We went to, of course, we went to to Santa Monica and the pier. We went to Beverly Hills, and my daughter got to see some some of those famous places like the Beverly Hills Hotel and some of the shops there and all that, and, and some of the. I got a fat burger for the first time in my life, <laughs> which I've been I've been a fan of uh, Ice Cube and the song. Uh, Today was a good day. Well, that was a good day. I had a fat burger, that was awesome. New Year's went to Rayos. Steve, do you know about this place? No. Famous Italian place. I think the original is in New York City. If you watch The Wolf of Wall Street. This okay. is where um, the scenes are with Bo Deedle, the famous like detective and, and private investigator, where they're kind of strategizing on what to do. They're at Rayo's, and they have this, this, this small restaurant in Hollywood. We ate there New Year's Eve. Thank you to my friend Timmy Adams, who got squeezed us in with him at his table. And we actually got to count down the Eastern time zone New Year's in the restaurant. It was cool. It was that kind of vibe there. But just did all that stuff and more. I mean, we, we just did it all. And the, 
I experienced all of that with my daughter outside of the game. So it was sweet. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, for me, want a big thanks to listener Laura and her husband, Jeff. Their son and my son know each other for a long, long time. They just basically adopted him for the times where I could not be there and around with him. He got to see the parade. They provided all these tickets for my son to go to. So he got to see a Rose Bowl parade that I didn't get to see. All of us went down to the alumni pep rally, which was at USC's basketball arena. And ironic that it was USC's basketball arena and it was draped in Michigan stuff on the floor, on the scoreboards, up high digitally. And they announced that this is the first Big Ten event inside USC. And it uh, happened to be on New Year's Eve, you know, but but it looked like it was a Michigan arena instead of USC's, but it was actually where the Trojans big, play, a play basketball. Event, a Big Ten event. It was the first Big Ten event inside USC. And it's not Michigan, Michigan State or anything like that, but can you imagine Michigan State's basketball arena being covered with another university no. within its same conference? You just, you just not would not expect that at the Breslin Center no. whatsoever. But that's what we got to, got to do there. None of us have been on USC's campus. We took a look, and we thought it was about a, a little less than a mile to walk to the L.A. Coliseum. Okay. So we went through campus at USC, and I was stunned about how great it looked. Mm. The interlocking brick, the facade of the buildings, they had a lot of water fountains that were not in use. It was all dried up, probably because the students weren't around in town, but it looked really, really nice. And we had this long walk. We kind of stumbled across the railroad tracks, and then we found out that the Science Center directly in front of us was having this last day with the space shuttle discovery before it's removed from display for a couple of years. I'm like, what? So we just kind of followed the crowd. And sure enough, I've been to the Cape Canaveral NASA deal where it's a big deal and you pay a bunch of money. This was free at USC. And it was basically the same thing, but located at USC. And you walked into this, into this barn kind of structure and there was the space shuttle Endeavor completely intact, suspended in, in the air. What apparently they're going to do is move it to outside and they're building or getting the old rocket boosters and they're putting it all together. Oh, my God. And making an outdoor display out of it. Now, none of this we knew going into it, but we literally did what some people showed up for on New Year's Eve with their children as like a, not a three-hour tour and get lost on Gilligan's Island, but a like you know four, <laughs> five, six-hour deal, and we went through all of it in five minutes just so that we could see the shuttle. That's my style, Steve. Yeah, so we saw the, download, the shuttle. The download. We went the speed route. <laughs> yeah. Got out, then we finally saw right next door. There was Memorial Coliseum. At host of the Olympics, you know, from 1984, and then there was one in the 30s, and LA's hosting again coming up. But there was the Coliseum, and we kind of walked halfway around it, saw the famed entrance with the arches, and they had the statues of the athletes, you know, the two bronze statues of the athletes, and we were both stunned about how anatomically correct both the statues are. And I just got to imagine that every 10-year-old kid who walks past that statue has questions for mommy and dad. <laughs> oh, boy. Because that's how anatomically, oh, I got you. anatomically correct it all was. Okay, it was kinda... in, the, in the midsection then. Okay, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Okay, all right. So <laughs> there was that. And then, surprisingly, in the arches, and you could see some of the seats, we saw a black cat. It didn't cross our paths. Oh, it was a good 60 yards away. But it was literally walking on top of a railing that we could visibly see at, at, the, at the street level row. And we didn't know whether that was an omen or not. Maybe that's why Caleb Williams in USC had such a bad season. Didn't seem to affect him in the Dr. Pepper ads, though. But we saw a black cat. Yeah, by the way, this is one of those games. And in fact, I don't know if you heard the interview with Brad Galley um, with Jackie and uh, Jack Harbaugh, mm -hmm. but they said they switched seats with yes. like five minutes to go in the game. Right. <laughs> you know, and I know everyone has their little super, we've yes. talked about it on the show, but I love that even Jack Harbaugh, you know, the seasoned coach and his wife, we better switch seats here. You know, like, like their son's <laughs> coaching the game. Like, like, haven't they done enough already? It's like, you know, we got to switch the karma here, uh, Jackie. I love that. So I we, love that. So we did that together as a group. Uh, the day before did the Warner Brothers Studio tour. Nice. The uh, story behind that is all the things that we saw, the set stages, the streets, 
were all from shows that really neither my son nor I watched, but my wife and his sister, my daughter, they all watched these shows. And they said, they should have done this tour. We should have been home in Ann Arbor. <laughs> and so we ended up like sitting on the friend's couch, not knowing, was this a big deal? Like next to a fountain, is this a big deal? You right. know, it's like- the, Oh, like the coffee shop, the central yeah. perk. Well, and then, yeah. and then the one that they do in the theme, oh, okay. the opening theme, yeah, and they're yeah. dancing in the fountain. Right. We were there for that. Um, eh, scenes from the, from Gilmore <laughs> Girls. We were in some canopy. I don't know what this means, but apparently it's an iconic shot. No, not, I, nothing's resonating with me, Steve. No. So <laughs> there was one deal. There was this alleyway, and this is kind of a surprise, but there was this alleyway, and it's not very wide, and it's not very long. But they said this shot right here you're looking at was used in three feature films. One, it was used as the place where... Spider-Man's Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst did the upside-down kiss. Classic. Out the window. Half the mask off, right. It was also the place where Gizmo and Gremlins started going crazy outside. Good. Great movie. And then the third shot, again, these are unrelated, but it was shot in the exact same 10-by-20-foot space where Prince comes out of the fog in the alleyway riding his motorcycle in the movie Purple Rain. And All three in the exact same spot. Does he pick up Apollonia, or is that just a scene in the movie? Like, like, <laughs> did they did they race off to Lake Minnetonka? A uh, great. Uh, I'm gonna go with Purple Rain. I love that movie. As far as my favorite, I did like that Spider Man though as yeah. well. Um, and you know, I was a big fan of Gremlins. I gotta say, but that's is it sort of like so in this very spot here. This is yeah. where Jack from Titanic. Right. Did this scene. And by the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger killed a guy right here yeah. at this very spot. <laughs> right. Rest in peace. And by the way, and this is where Meryl Streep fell in love. It's so, yeah. you know, Sophie's Joy. You know, it's, it's just funny. like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any I, sense. I swear one of the houses I passed in Beverly Hills was the Beverly Hills house that Axel snuck into and just lived there for a oh, while. Oh, yes. I'm almost positive. <laughs> and it was right on this main drive. It wasn't Rodale, but it was on a big drive. But the street was so wide, I'm like, this would be perfect for a movie crew. And I think it was. So perfect. I love it. Uh, we tried to find the tallest building that we could get into so that we could take it to the top floor and see the sights from there. See the it, city, yeah. It turned out to be the Alabama Team Hotel, yeah, where the lobby is on the 70th floor. And so we kind of hang out there, and we kind of were a fish out of water uh, in Michigan gear at the Alabama um, team hotel and uh, got some looks and we took some pictures and then we left. Their fans are pretty cool though. I we obviously bump into a lot of fans. I went to uh, the team hotel, JW Marriott, which was where the team was staying. And if you've been to these road trips, there's always kind of a vibe um, at the team hotel. Like a lot of stuff happened after the game, after the Big Ten championship. And I've never really been a part of that. Never really bothered to go, but I kind of get it now. I went over there and it's it's like a sea of. Who's who, but also the families, and you see players, and you see the whole thing there. Coaches just wandering around, and I imagine that was quite – although the team left right after the game. But, I mean, either, either way, I, I wonder with all the families and stuff, that must have been quite a scene after the game. Speaking of the JW Marriott, caught an event, Steve, an NIL kind of information slash fundraising event, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Light, let's catch lightning in a bottle here, guys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> where they brought a lot of the big supporters and families and influencers. And I won't get into it because it wasn't like a media event or something official. I think I was invited out of courtesy from Champion Circle because I teach the class and all that stuff. And it was a push to say kind of what you think, that Michigan's behind. And they actually gave some metrics about where other teams are. And we are, there's a tier one. And you probably know some of those names like Notre Dame and Texas A&M. There's a tier two. And we're not even in that category NIL-wise. And that was kind of the message. And bigger than that, like all of the other things that the football program influences and does. And it was kind of like, hey, you like being at the Rose Bowl? <laughs> you like being at these big games? Because this is what it's going to take at least for the next few years before we figure out revenue sharing to get there, to be back, to return or do you want to be at the Quick Lane Bowl at the Rensen? Because we could do it there. <laughs> you know, it was it was kind of that. It's tough. It was kind of it's that. It's tough. I and, mean, you know, I think Ohio State's kind of going through some of the same things as too, trying to, to to convince their base to contribute on top of 
what they already are, and it's certainly going to be a focus of our programming during the football offseason. Well, and it's going to start right away because this is this is the time, and this this is a little surprising, but this is the time that the, you have all the transfer portal people and all of the schools telling through all their channels to get players to, to come, hey, leave Michigan and come play for us, and here's the money. We talked about a bit of this before, but this is really the time where you need to have those, I'll just call it, NIL compliant opportunities available for our student athletes. So we'll see. So, but amazing trip, Steve. What can you say? It's great. And yeah. we are going to Houston. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but we'll try to get through some things. Um, I am heading over the weekend. I think you are as well. Yeah, yep, sure am. And it's a good thing. Uh, I, I was a little concerned that you weren't going to be able to go because of classes. Yeah. But bless you, Santa Ono <laughs> and Jordan Acker and the rest of the Regents, because. Last year, they passed a change. Michigan classes used to start a couple days after the New Year, so January 3rd or 4th. They moved it last year. So last year, that's how it was. They, they, they made an announcement last year that they were going to push out the winter schedule to an extra week. So actually, classes don't start, Steve, until Wednesday, I believe it's the 10th. Yeah, Wednesday the 10th, yep. which is when I'm coming back because I am taking – I'm traveling across America. To get the discounted airline. That a boy. It is. It is. I looked at it. It's like seventeen hundred dollars to fly round trip directly out of Houston, and the flight times are terrible. If yeah, for what's available, when I checked, there were very few seats at any kind of reasonable time, and you are paying around two thousand bucks min. So if you want a seat on a plane that was at a reasonable time within a reasonable time frame, as much as thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars a seat. So, Direct into Houston or Houston Hobby, which is the other airport that's that you can fly into. So I think I'm making like two stops, one stop one way and two stops the other way. Just throw a dart at a city on the map and try Houston to there first and then that city back to Detroit. <laughs> okay. and, and it will work a lot better for you. I think I got mine for about 500. Not bad. So pack a carry-on, Steve. We don't want to lose in your bag. We don't want you wearing a, uh, wearing a knapsack uh, inside the entire weekend, okay? Uh, and you're getting in, so we'll have, we'll have a chance to get together down there. I'm sure we'll see each other at the game, of course. Uh, we won't be back probably to break down the game, but it'll probably be on this schedule where it'll be later later in that week, you know, off our kind of Monday, Tuesday schedule. But bear with us for that, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So yeah. do you but, have a quick few quick thoughts yeah, about let's Washington? Talk, let's, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I think all of you know about the arm strength of Michael Penix, his accuracy, his rainbow tosses that remind me of Danny Werfel when he played for the Florida Gators. Very accurate guy. I think the big breakdown about this is you saw how well Michigan did against the Alabama offensive line. Being able to get Michael Penix out of rhythm, it doesn't have to be sacks, but just get him out of rhythm and not so comfortable because he's so deadly accurate involves getting a pass rush against this year's Joe Moore award-winning offensive line. They have given up only 11 sacks so far this season out of 14. Those that picked Texas to beat Washington cited the interior line play on the defense as something that would break through Washington. No. Didn't. They didn't at all. Yeah. There were no sacks in that whatsoever. Now, Washington almost gave the game away, but this is your big matchup. Michigan's, if Michigan does not get a pass rush, then Washington's offense could very well look like Joe Burrow and LSU uh, and what they did to Clemson. Okay. And just score at will. Now, Michigan offensively could also score at will because Washington is not exactly great in terms of their total defense. Or their, you know, passing play yardage, their rushing play yardage. Michigan will try to drain clock as much as possible. And if they can stop Washington a couple of times, then they can feel like they're in the driver's seat. However, on the opposite side, Washington feels, look, error brigade. And if we're up a touchdown or two scores early, well, then Michigan's going to have to come from behind and start airing it out. And that would play right into Washington's hands. So, both feel that if they can get the early lead and take the other out of their game plan, then they feel they have the secret to success. Reading up on Washington, they feel they are on a mission of destiny just as much as Michigan is. They are just as confident, if not arrogant, about yeah. their chances. 
I thought that in a way that Michigan was reacting to TCU last year, Alabama was reacting to Michigan the same way. I felt like I was all of a sudden in TCU shoes and Michigan came out and won that. I don't necessarily think that being the underdog is the reason why you win the game, but it's just something that you've got two teams that are highly confident in their own abilities and that winning the game is something that is going to happen and it's something that they believe in. And there's a couple of things that could stop them along the way. But, uh, I mean, that is your biggest matchup right there, the pass rush versus that. And the last thing that I'll mention about their offense, besides four quality receivers, okay, not too many teams have two 1,000-yard receivers on their team. This team does. they got four quality receivers in this. And in the second half of the year, they started relying on their running game more to balance that out. Now, that guy, Dylan Johnson, who is a transfer from – Mississippi State, I believe. He got hurt in the final yeah, minute. Yeah, he did. And everybody's saying, nope, x-rays were negative, he's going to play. He also got carted off the field. And I don't know how many people who get carted off the field actually play a week later, but they say that Dylan Johnson will be ready. And he better be ready for Washington because the backup Washington running backs, none of them have more than 200 yards. By having a balanced rushing tech, something that a defense has to respect, Michael Penix is even more dangerous. But take that away then it's basically mostly pass, and that would play into Michigan's hands. Okay, so it, feel, it feels like it's clearly Washington's offense, Michigan's defense is where most of the eyes are going to be focused to see if there's cues about how this game is going to go. We have faced Michael Penix before, and he's the guy who led Indiana to its first win over Michigan in 1987, uh, threw for over 300 yards, three TDs, took it to Michigan really bad, of course, but then he was gone, transferred to Washington. We have a common opponent this year, Steve, Michigan State. Yes, that's right. Now, what, Go do, ahead. what do we glean from these results? Uh, Washington 41-7 <laughs> and not even that close. Michigan 49 nothing. Eh, probably not even that close. What, what do we glean from these games? Probably nothing. <laughs> no, you can't do the transitive property, but it still yeah. gives you a little bit better feeling knowing that maybe Michigan beat Michigan State just a uh, little bit more. I think Just a little bit more. I think you dub took the took the. The, the foot off the gas earlier than Michigan did in this game. Like, they were just killing them. Um, not that Michigan didn't, so we'll see. Uh, what else? Oh, I got to mention yeah. Troy Fautanu, named the Pac-12's top offensive lineman. And this is what I like about the Pac-12, and I hope they adopt this in the Big Ten someday. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Go ahead. They get awards as best position player this, best position player that in the entire conference, but the vote is not done by writers. It's not done by coaches. It's done by the players that went up against them themselves. Yeah. So it's a great way to do it because I remember when Troy Smith was doing his thing at Ohio State, and I remember they pulled, like maybe it was Michael Spath, but someone pulled the Michigan players about who's the best player in the Big Ten. And they all said Troy Smith. Like I respect that so much. Like it, it did, it took him up a level. And of course, he. It paid off. I mean, the way he did it, but I love that. Let the players decide who's the best. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Not, so, not, not a PFF service, not Bill Conley, not media, not Bruce Feldman, the players. Fautanu, the top, again, this whole line has only given up uh, 11 sacks. So that's what you have there. And on defense, I think one of the things that saved Washington's season, there's always those moments was a rare game at the desert. Arizona State, not exactly the best team in the world, but Washington was trailing 7-6 to six midway through the fourth quarter when Mish Powell got his third interception of the year, and it was the only interception in the entire season that was returned for a touchdown. That gave Washington their first lead midway through the fourth okay. quarter over Arizona State. They would end up winning 15-7. to seven. Uh, in that one, in so one of those games of that Maryland, was close, kind of like our Maryland situation, right? So, yeah, and yeah. and Washington, again, why do they think destiny's on their side? Because they played ten straight games that were decided by ten points or less, and they won them all. Okay, and and they the the, the disrespect you kind of hit on it, but they feel disrespected too a little bit, I think, because like everyone was saying, Oregon was the best team, even though they mm-hmm. had already beat them. Like, Already beaten. Yeah, I know. They were a 10-point underdog in the rematch. It's, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, you can get why they feel a chip. And, and, you know, there's probably a little bitterness that Penix didn't win the Heisman because, frankly, I would have voted for him. I would have taken him. Um, 
Well, yeah, they yeah. they they feel a little sore yeah. about that. I don't think it's Peyton Manning, Tennessee, but they feel no, sore about no. It. He kind of, you know, Penix kind of trailed off a little bit in the second half, but then he played like he did at the beginning of the year in this bowl game against Texas. They're going to need that type of performance if they're going to have a chance. I think in this one in Michigan, I think it's very possible to have happen for yeah. Washington. It's the top ranked passing offense in the nation, going against a Wolverine defense that ranks a close second in passing yards allowed per game. So, I mean, it is two very contrasting styles, and it's strength versus strength. Uh, no matter what happens, the winner will be in the Big Ten next year. We'll be a, we'll be a Big Ten champ. The SEC's out, the big I winner. I think uh, Michigan outside. goes there, don't think? I think Michigan, Michigan goes, goes there And October. we play Washington, and we play, of course we play Texas at home, but, but the national championship will reside in the Big Ten. Technically, right? The defending champ will be in the Big Ten, and it's going to be nuts. Uh, up Fox, a big winner here, too, yep. with, the, with the TD, I suppose, you know, our buddy. Here's a storyline I want to hear in October, because I think they're playing like October 5th, first weekend in October. Washington at home to avenge last year's national championship game. That's, it, that's what I want to hear. Let it be, Steve. Let it be. <laughs> let it be. All right, what else, man? Anything else? Michigan. The three-time Big Ten back-to-back-to-back champions. Winners over the Rose Bowl over Alabama. And looking to become a national champion outright since 1948. Can you make that live? I want more and more and more I added on to that. By the way, I think Nick is going to be down in Houston, Steve, so maybe we can get a photo with our man. Thank you, Nick, for all the support. What an incredible season to do a podcast. What an incredible year to do a podcast. Here we are in 2024. Go blue, Greg. Steve, we're still going. Go blue.